0: From WDBM East Lansing,
1: you are listening to The, the
0: Undercurrent. Undercurrent, our weekly news
1: and storytelling program made by and for the students of Michigan State University. You are listening
2: to The Undercurrent. The Undercurrent.
0: Hey, hi, and hello, and welcome to The Undercurrent. I'm your host, Sophie Sagan, and you are listening to Season 13, Episode 2. We're calling this week's episode, Taking the Stage. And I've got to make my intro just a little bit short this week, because the two stories I have for you today are a little bit on the longer side, but I promise you they're worth it. I've got one new and one old, and we're going to get started with my interview with Khalil Ashante. I was so excited to talk to him about his widely accredited one-man show, Basic Training, that he will be performing at MSU's Wharton Center on January 30th and 31st, 2020. Let's jump right in. Why don't we just start with you introducing yourself?
3: Uh, My name is Khalil Ashante. I'm an actor, a web developer, and entrepreneur, and I uh, perform a one-person show called Basic Training, which is the true story of my violently abusive childhood and how I found peace and was able to escape that childhood by joining the U.S. Air Force, and uh, performing for Troops in War Zones.
0: And you were performing your show right here at the Wharton Center pretty soon. Have you ever been to Michigan before?
3: I have been to Michigan. There used to be a base called K.I. Sawyer Air Force Base in Michigan that uh, I used to perform at every year, and it was in um, Marquette County?
0: Yeah. Michigan? mm
3: mm-hmm. Upper Michigan's upper peninsula there. It closed in 1995. That tells you how old I am. Um, and... Um, uh yeah, coming to Michigan a few times for that was, was always an interesting experience because I actually went to high school in the Midwest, so I was very used to the cold.
0: Oh, very cool. Cool. Well, we're glad to uh, have you back here uh, in East Lansing pretty soon. I want to ask about the show that you're performing, um, Basic Training. So how did you get the idea to write that show? Well,
3: writing Basic Training came as almost a happy accident. I was living in L.A. as an actor, and I was trying to do what I thought actors are supposed to do, which was you go to auditions, and you wear tight clothing, and you whiten your teeth, and you change your appearance to try to be exactly what it is they want you to be. And although I never got to the whitening teeth part, um, <laughs> I um, I ended up taking an acting class from Jeffrey Tambor, who really gave me um, a virtue, will smack across the face and said, stop trying to be everybody else. What we need is you. The only thing that's unique about you is your story and what you bring to your work. Um, we don't want a carbon copy, you know? Uh, um, uh, and, and so that was really a wake up call for me. And it was in his class that the seeds of basic training were sowed because he challenged me to challenge myself, he said, instead of going to Samuel French and getting stuff everybody else has written, why not bring us something about your own life? He called it a story exercise, where you bring in a scene that has a beginning, middle, and end, and you flesh it out in front of a live audience, the audience being fellow actors. And in this case, in Jeffrey Tambor's class at the time, and um, these were actors that were already on TV. They were, they were very much working actors. And so, so that's how it all began. And each week, I would take a little bit more of the story and bring it out. And it went from me trying to be funny and hiding behind my comedy to Jeffrey really pulling out of me what it means to tell a story and what it means to be remarkable and interesting rather than just funny.
0: Wow. What an interesting process. How long did it take you then from start to finish to have like a full sort of finished product?
3: Uh, Probably... About a year and a half, I would say. I mean, the, the thing about this show is I wrote it in 2002, began performing it in 2003, 2004, and I still feel like it's evolving. I've grown in so many ways and the story has grown in so many ways. So it never feels like a finished product. It feels like this wonderfully evolving sort of animal.
0: Interesting. Can you say more about that?
3: Yeah, it's well. you write from where you are at the time. You know, when I first wrote the show, I wasn't married, I didn't have kids, I was single, living in L.A., which anyone who's listening, who whether you're a parent or not, you know, that's a whole different set of priorities <laughs> than, than actually having a family and, and, and things like that. But the thing that I feel like makes basic training unique is that the audience is invited on stage to be a part of that, that new world. And so in that respect, uh, a lot of audience members have told me it feels like cinema on stage. And so I've been able to uh, continue to perform the show and because I shake the hand of every audience member as they leave the, the room, the theater, wherever it's being performed, I have this constant feedback loop of, you know, what really lands with people and how I can tweak things, maybe not rewriting the show each time, but being able to really be present with the audience each time I perform it. And that's helped it grow and evolve in addition to the evolution that happens with you becoming older and and, um, hopefully a more intelligent human being.
0: So what is, because it is such a, you know, personal story, it comes right from your heart, what's the most difficult part, or maybe what's the most, like, joyful part about writing a show um, about yourself and your own experiences?
3: The most joyful part for me was realizing that my story mattered. I remember thinking, well, you know, I'm a black guy from an abusive family who didn't have a great relationship with his dad. Like, really, is that... Boo-hoo, is that such a sob story? Who cares? And then pretty much everybody I knew who joined the military was running away from something, and I don't know anybody that had a happy childhood. So, well, who am I to tell my story? And then what I learned as a performer, and as an actor in the craft, is that it's how you tell it, and it's the place that you're coming from, and, and it's the bravery to actually just shut up and put it on stage. It feels like bravery in hindsight. When I was actually doing it, it was, it was terrified, but the fact that I actually... Took it to class, got it on stage, and just started working it out in front of audiences, it meant that audiences helped me realize that my story mattered and I was able to thank them by working harder each time.
0: Absolutely. The the other thing that sort of amazes me about this show is that it's only sixty minutes long, but you portray twenty three different characters. Is that right? Yeah. That's yeah, insane. That's right. So do you yeah. have a favorite um, character that you wrote or that you like to perform?
3: Yeah, I think probably there's a couple. There's a, there's, there's a couple that I really enjoy performing because they use language that um, my mom would never let me use in <laughs> public. <laughs> I'll put it that way. There's, there's some salty language in the show because it is the military. I mean, it's real. That's one of the things people listening should know is when they come and see the show it's 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 real and it's it's unflinching, so it's just a joy to be able to play characters who get away with things that I could never get away with in real life.
0: One tagline of the show describes it as a theatrical mix of storytelling, redemption, and comedy. How do these three things fit together here?
3: well, storytelling, redemption, and comedy what that really means is that my my understanding of comedy before I started taking class was that, hey, you're just trying to be funny, and, and you're just, you know, just make people laugh, and there's, you know, try to hide the pain, just, just keep people laughing, which was very much a reflection of my own personal life, and then I realized that the true comedy comes from the fact that you can expose that pain and let people know what the price of being funny, and in that price there's redemption. There's things that we go through, you know, as you'll see in basic training, things my character goes through that are all true. It's, be, it's a true story that are incredibly painful and poignant, but they're funny in, a, in an odd way. You know, we weave that into the show and into the situations um, without forcing it. And that makes people laugh and it makes people cry.
0: Switching gears here a little bit, besides your really great accomplishments as a writer and an actor, you're also a web developer and an entrepreneur. Can you talk a little bit About this? I think that's so interesting.
3: One of the first things I did after I got out of the military was I I kept auditioning and I performed magic in Japanese at Caesars Palace. (laughs) Um, Maybe we'll save that for another interview. Um, But I decided to translate the show into Japanese and have Caesars Palace license it from me. And that was my first entrepreneurial endeavor. And so this was 1997. And then in 1998, I started learning how to build websites. And, and and so that began my entrepreneurial journey of 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 understanding what it took to perform, but also how do audiences find you. And and and, and through that and being a performer, I developed this dual skill set of being able to do both and understand both sides of the industry. And when I wrote my new show, which is about the childhood of Richard Pryor, called Meet Richard Pryor, uh, after basic training, I wrote a new show, and I wasn't sure what to charge the audience for tickets. So I decided to ask them the old-fashioned way, like, hey, throw some money in the bucket, you know, pass the hat, that kind of thing. Pay what you want. And I made more money that way than had I charged $20 a person.
0: Oh, my goodness.
3: Yeah, I was like, whoa, hold on, wait a minute. I've been performing on Broadway, and I had this show, Basic Training, that had toured all over the world, and I thought, I've made as much money as I can, and I realized I didn't even scratch the surface. Like, these people love the show so much, and because I do shake everyone's hand at the end of the show, they would tell me, I would have paid more for that. I thought that was going to suck. You're actually pretty good. I would have paid more for that. I thought, oh, crap, how do I ask them for more money afterwards? Like, the perceived value of any show is highest, after you've seen it. What I mean, think about the what you feel after you've seen something. You're really excited if it's been good. And there was nothing online that allowed me to ask my audience for money when the value to them was highest. So I went online and I with my coding skills, I built one and it's called WeShowUp.io. And We Show Up is a software company I built that allows you to Go to any show, reserve a spot for a couple of dollars. You come see the show, and then afterwards, you get a text or an email that says, hey, how much did you think that was worth? You type in how much you want, and off you go. When I tested that, I made 82% more than when I performed on Broadway.
0: Holy cow. Wow, what an yeah. ingenious idea.
3: <laughs> yeah, thanks. It's... But that's part of the journey is I've, I've just learned as an actor— You know, being just an actor, you're really doing yourself a disservice. Knowing the business, having ideas, and the courage to put my ideas out there into the world, whether I think they're great or not, was really a huge um, learning curve for me.
0: Um, Okay, well, that's most of my questions, actually. Usually the last thing I'll ask is, you know, is there anything I didn't ask you or is there anything you would like to add before I let you go?
3: No, no, not at all. All are welcome. Come check me out at the Wharton Center, January 30th and 31st, uh, Wharton Center for the Performing Arts, basic training. Um, And I'm also doing uh, workshops with at-risk youth while I'm there. Every time I perform in a city, I like to give back to that community rather than just rolling in and making money and rolling out. I want to make sure that I contribute and and, uh, I'm a part of the solution wherever I go. And then, you know, we show up.io is online. If you're an artist or a performer or a performing arts center and you want to attract new audiences, you, it's self-serve. You can be up and running in less than 10 minutes. And, um, uh, yeah, regardless of how we meet, I'd love to meet. And I hope to uh, see you and, and some of your listeners down at the Wharton Center.
0: Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you so much for taking the time for uh, this interview out. Oh. For the undercurrent, yeah, hopefully I will get to meet you when you come in town.
3: Yeah, thanks so much for the interview, and looking forward to uh, to meeting you as well.
0: If you want more information about that upcoming show, please check out the Wharton Center's website. And if you want to keep up with Khalil on social media, you can find him on Twitter as at Khalil Ashante. Instagram is Khalil.Ashante, and Facebook, you guessed it, it's Khalil Ashante. Up next, we've got a story by reporter Taylor Halterman from our last season, she was able to talk to a few members from the band Sure Sure.
2: On October 9th, I attended the Half Alive concert at St. Andrew's Hall in Detroit. Sure Sure was the opening act, but I wasn't sure sure what to expect. Fortunately, I was hooked from the first guitar riff. After the concert, I jammed to their music for a couple of weeks and was able to speak to two of the members, Kevin Farzad and Charlie Glick, on the phone when they returned to their home in L.A. after the tour. I'm Taylor Holterman in the studio for WDBM Impact, and I'm with Sure Sure. First, would you guys like to introduce yourselves and your roles in the band?
4: Sure. I'm Kevin, and I play drums. I am Charlie, and I play
1: guitar and sing.
2: So to start off, I'd like to kind of go back to the start of the band. I believe you guys began producing music back in 2014. Is that right? That's correct. So, how yeah. did sure, sure start out?
1: This is Charlie here. Uh, so, I had met Chris in college, and we'd been at that point we'd been playing for four or five years already. We moved. We started Sure, sure because we broke up our college band, and then wanted to start a band with this guy we had heard of named <laughs> Kevin Farzad on the drums. So we ended up. We were kind of like we were living in San Francisco, and Kevin was in LA.
4: Yeah, and I he, was I was visiting them a lot. We had this, like, long-distance relationship. It was pretty fun, honestly.
1: Yeah, and Kevin would come up, and we'd record, and... Sean, <laughs> we, <laughs> somehow we had access to Sean Parker's studio, the Napster guy. Yeah. So we had, like, free access to this dope studio, and we, like, ate all this, like...
4: So many sandwiches. lunches on his behalf.
1: Yeah, so many lunches, and... Plenty of, I had a lot of San Pellegrino, like, lemon So good. <laughs> Those are so good. And, and a lot of beer, too, when it, yeah. when it hit 5 o'clock. was great. <laughs> Thank you, Sean Parker. But anyway, so, but then we moved, we ended up wanting to leave San Francisco, and we met, around that time, we also met Mike, who's our producer, and uh, he plays bass, too. And then we, like, all just, we were like, let's leave San Francisco, and we moved into Mike's house. We had a home studio in L.A., and then that's when we started making
4: music, the four of us. We were like, oh, the four of us together, we could do it ourselves. Like, we could record in our house and put music online, and we didn't. It, it was like a, it became a self-contained machine known as SureSure. Sure.
2: So what was the moment for you guys when you thought, like, wow, we could really do this? It, that moment happens
4: more than once. You, it requires a bunch of little moments of, oh, wow, we can do this. For me... Is Kevin. There was that moment where we recorded the first time together, and it was of a good enough quality that I was like, "Oh wow, we can do this." And then again, when we like put some music out in like what is it, 2015 or something mm-hmm. on Spotify, and it it got on a front page playlist called Fresh Finds, and and it gave us an audience, and I was like, "Oh wow, we can do this." And then again, we were, like, offered a tour by Hippo Campus to open for them. I was like, oh, wow, we can do this. So, honestly, those things need to happen, like, a handful of times, in my opinion.
2: Consistent, oh, well, we can do this to keep you going. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Sure, sure is a very unique name to me. How did you guys decide on that name?
4: Uh, <laughs> one day we'll make up a really good story for this question because we have a very boring answer. Bruce Springsteen gave it to us. <laughs>
1: wow, I really, I really got Kevin. Really
4: so.
1: <laughs> it was actually Prince.
4: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah Prince.
1: Prince. Prince. Yeah. yeah, he
4: heard our music. He's like, sure, sure. R.I.P. Prince. No disrespect to Prince. Yeah, love Prince. Greatest. Big, big influence. The greatest. I mean, honestly, yeah, big biggest.
1: Influence. Uh, we used to be the actual stories. We used to be, have it actually when we first started. We had we were called or not we weren't called Sure Sure. We were called Junior. And then that band Dale Earnhardt Jr. Jr., I think they're from Michigan, aren't they? <laughs> yeah. Out there. yeah.
4: So. They changed their name to Jr. Jr., and we're like, I can't live under that. Yeah, we don't want to live under that, so then
1: we changed their name to Sher Sher. After like six months of deliberating.
4: Six months of deliberation, we couldn't think of
2: any name, and we're like, well,
4: that that one, and we were pointing to Sher, like We're like, that. everyone likes that one at least enough.
2: I think it's pretty catchy. I like it.
4: We all love it now. Now it's like, oh, great decision. Yeah. <laughs> Good job
2: along with the unique name, you have a very unique sound and you produce your own music, right? Yep. So can you walk me through a little bit of that process and how you guys developed your sound? Mm. A lot of tinkering.
1: A lot of tinkering, a lot of, a lot of twiddling. Yeah. A lot of, uh, knob turning, knob turning, a lot of strumming, (laughs) a lot of, uh, a lot of listening,
4: (laughs) a lot of listening. (laughs) A lot, a, lot of, of, a lot of putting a microphone there and then saying nope.
1: A lot of uh, putting, a lot, a lot of putting a microphone <laughs> in a different place and then being like, "All right." Nice. <laughs> it, it, I don't know. It depends on the song, though. Like sometimes it's all. I guess in the beginning, I don't know. It's it's always a mix of like stuff we like started making in a computer. Yeah. And then also stuff we came up together live. Like and it's still like that. Like even just this morning, I was just in my room. And I like took this like techno, like a house beat, and then slowed it down to, like hella. And then I put like this moog bass on it. Yeah. And then I and then Kevin came into the room, and I was like, "Hey, check this out." <laughs> and so like that might be a song.
4: Yeah,
2: yeah it I'm probably gonna, will be. I
1: want to work on it. So it just depends. It's always always different.
2: I look it's, forward it's, to hearing yeah. that song. Yeah, yeah
1: it's really weird. It's, it's <laughs> so it's weird, but yeah, we're gonna cool. we're gonna around with it it's mean it's mean yeah i called the project mean <laughs> and it sounds really mean
2: <laughs> you produce your music in your house right
1: oh yeah yeah, yeah. I mean, the whole house
2: is converted to a
1: studio basically i mean we have like mike's room is mike's bedroom is the main studio like where the there's a big mixing desk with all this yeah. outboard gear mm-hmm. and the computer and then but then we all also have like mini like mini studios in the rest of our rooms so it's just a big factory
2: That's really cool. Yeah. How would you describe your music for someone who has never heard? Stadium jazz.
1: There you go. How about, like, happy? Uh, I don't know. This doesn't even really make sense anymore. It used to be, like, when we were first starting out, we were more like happy radiohead. But lately, we're more, like, soul-influenced. Kind of, like, beatles and the economy of our song structures, I think. We try to be, at least. It's hard. It's um, hard.
2: They had a good economy.
1: They had a good economy, yeah. Yeah.
2: If someone could only listen to one of your songs to get the grasp of the band, what song would you recommend them listen to?
4: Oh, man. Impossible question. Good question. One school
1: of thought would say, listen to Warm Animal.
4: Yeah.
1: Another school of thought would say, why don't you go on back and listen to Saudad?
4: Oh, wow. Go go on back, listen to New Biome.
1: Yeah, honestly, yeah, maybe New Biome is the prototype. Even Okinawa. I mean, Okinawa could be the pro- prototype.
2: Well, a little bit of an easier everything. question. Yeah. Your mm-hmm. album, What's It Like, dropped this year. Can you talk to me a little bit about the album and like the creative process?
1: Yeah, I mean that. So that record, we recorded it like so. Last year was our fir- the first year we ever toured, and I think we went on three tours. And we also had to move in the summer, so it actually wasn't that much time to record. So that that record is like. Basically all the songs we made in between touring, so it's an interesting record because it's kind of like influ- definitely influenced by playing in front of crowds more, but yeah. and it's also more soul influenced than I think our our previous album was. Yeah, I don't know. It was honestly kind of a difficult yeah creative process because we never had like a big swath of time <laughs> to like dive into making. That's why it's it's that's why it's short. It's technically like an EP. Yeah, because it. But we're now we're finally working on like a full-on album, which will be really exciting, because um, we have a lot of time now.
2: And do you have a favorite song on the album?
1: Ooh, actually, what is my favorite song now? It's always changing. It was, might, might not. But I think it might be Sedona
4: now. Maybe uh, Out of My Element. That one just gets me. Makes me feel nostalgic.
2: So moving a little bit forward, uh, you just got done touring with Half Alive, and I heard you'll yep. be headlining your own show in 2020. Oh, yeah. So what was the we're, touring experience like for you so far, and what are you expecting for your own tour?
1: So we're, getting, we're going to be headlining. We're doing one more opening tour uh, in the spring of next year, and then we're going to headline next fall. Uh, honestly, we're really stoked to headline because it's been it's – been, I mean, we headlined last, but uh, by the next time we headline, it'll, no, it'll have been two years since we had headlined. Oh, my god. Yeah, we're really stoked, and we're going to be touring on, like, a brand-new album that we'll probably be putting out next summer. So it's going to be a wild tour yeah, and that'd I, be
4: fun. opening is, is great. Um yeah you gotta you gotta try it once in your life, you know. <laughs> Go ahead, get out there open for a band. Because <laughs> yeah. you get like
1: especially for us, we're not like a signed band. We're we've been yeah pretty skeptical of the label world and yeah. uh we've found that honestly <laughs> like a great strategy for us has been get as many good opening tours as possible.
4: Yeah. So that we can play in front of a bunch of people who you otherwise wouldn't have access to cuz like we're not being like marketed, you know, with like millions of dollars behind us. But we can like we've been lucky enough to open for bands like Hippo Campus or Young the Giant who have these fan bases that we can play in front of.
1: Yeah, so then we steal all these fans
4: <laughs> and then
1: by the time we're headlining at the end of next year, we're just going to be a headliner forever. Yeah. <laughs> We just had to put in a couple of years of opening.
2: That's very it exciting. Yeah. Um,
4: yeah. So
2: what, That's very exciting. what yeah. can the audience expect from one of your shows?
4: I don't know, man. They can
1: expect to be a part of the band by the end of the night. They can expect a, a, a party. They can expect also to be a little bit sad sometimes.
4: Yeah, because we have some sad songs. Look, we're yeah. going to together feel the whole range of human emotion over the course of an hour, 15 minutes. Yeah. That's what it'll be like.
2: Yeah, it seems like you from going to your opening show with Half Alive, that you really involve the audience in your show and you tell stories and get the crowd dancing mm. with you and it really feels like you you care about the audience and like we're a part of what you guys are doing, which I thought was really awesome. And it's interesting yeah, how fun. you do it all live. Like there do you guys you don't use a backing track, correct?
4: No, I, this is Kevin. I have, like, a drum sampler next to me, like, a, a drum pad. And I can trigger little things. Like, there's four of us, and sometimes we don't have enough hands to play everything, even with Stanley the Hammer. So sometimes I can, like, press a button, and you'll hear, like, a pad or something, like, some... Like a piano. Piano, whatever it is.
1: But, but it's mostly live, yeah. Yeah, it's mostly 90, live. 90, 95%
4: live. And, like, because it's on that pad, like... You know, there's even the chance that I up and like miss that. There's still a lot of stakes. Um. So yeah, it is. You're hearing a live show.
2: What led you guys to make that choice?
4: To be a live band?
2: Yeah, because I know a lot of bands now like to use like they'll specifically use artists, so use backing tracks, and things like that. So yeah. I feel
1: like we had no other. I choice. mean, we didn't really have a choice. <laughs> I mean, we could have. Honestly, for me, I, and I think. Speaking for all of us, I, yeah. we never really wanted to play the track because, it's. No. Bo- uh, frankly, I think it's boring when a band yeah, relies yeah. too much on them. Because I go to a show to, like, see people play
4: music. Yeah. It's more exciting for us to play. Yeah. We like playing our instruments. It's, like, the whole yeah, thing. Yeah, point. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's fun for us. And also, yeah, Charlie's right. Like, you go to a show, it's kind of fun when you're watching the show and you're like, that guy could f*** up. Like, there's there's just more energy in the room if it's, like... Damn, he's playing that live, you know, and and not to say you can't like augment that with some backing tracks, but you want the core of it to be to feel live and to feel like there's mm-hmm. your it's happening right there.
2: So, what's your favorite part of performing?
4: My favorite part is walking out. <laughs> good, and
1: like really good answer. All the energy is
4: potential. Walking out, I got to tell you, that's really fun. That's a fun moment. Yeah, it is all potential energy, and you don't know where it's going to go. It can go anywhere. That's really good.
2: I saw online that you encourage your fans to call you, and there's a number to call. Is that legit? Could I call that number and, like, potentially have one of you pick up the phone? 657-444-7579. Give us
4: a call. You could give us a call or text us.
2: Is that just, like, your landline, your home number? Yeah. It's not a home
1: landline. There's a...
2: Yep, it's right inside the door here.
1: That's awesome.
2: Do you get a lot of people who call you?
1: Yeah. yeah. Actually, I think the ringer is off right now because I was watching TV the other night and it, and I turned it off, but then I forgot to turn it back up, so I'm going to do that after this call.
2: That's really cool. That's such an interesting thing for a band to do. I love that. Yeah.
1: And... We're, 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 we're some interesting guys.
2: Here. <laughs> so do you guys all live... In the house together that you record in?
1: Actually as of yeah. like as two of, yeah. as of two weeks ago, we're all living together for the first time.
4: First time ever. Before
1: that it had always been three like some combination of three of us. Yeah. Uh but now we are all in one four bedroom house. Holy in shit. LA. It's, it's great. So yeah, it is great. Uh,
2: What's that like? Does that breed a lot of collaboration? You push out music more yeah. with all of you together?
4: Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, it's just a so nice to like cook. Sometimes together and make coffee and stuff. Yeah,
2: I know you said you're working on some new music. What does the future look like for the band?
1: Well, yeah, we're doing. The, we're opening for COIN in the spring, and then we're headlining. And then we're going to release an album uh, probably late summer, and then we're going to tour on the albums. And we'll be releasing singles probably starting mm. probably one in <laughs> January or February, and then a couple more before the album, and then... And, and then, then uh, who knows, man? Then we'll be on Mars probably at that point. Almost, almost certainly. Yeah. Sky's the limit. Mars is not the limit.
2: And then, one final look back before I uh, wrap up the interview. Do you guys have, from all the way back to when you guys started, a favorite moment or a memory that you cherish from being a band?
4: I have a weird one that I think about sometimes. When we recorded Saudade, I remember we didn't really know what the we were doing. We were just excited to record it. And. We didn't do it, like, quote-unquote properly. I just remember, like, you came into the garage, and then we just, like, I think set up a microphone, maybe two, probably two, over the drum set, and then we just recorded drums oh, yeah. like that, and it was really fun. I thought that was, like, the most fun thing ever.
1: That was really fun. I don't
4: know why I, that felt magical. My favorite moment is...
1: Man, what is my favorite moment? <laughs> There's so many moments. One of my favorite moments is whenever we leave on tour... The first, like, time we're in, all in the van and, like, leaving the house, I, would yeah, love, I love that feeling. Just, like, leaving L.A. and then not not going to be back for, like, a month and a half. <laughs> starting a, a voyage, yeah. I like I like starting voyages. I like voyaging in general. <laughs> I like finishing voyages. And I also like not voyaging because not voyaging is essential to voyaging.
2: Yeah. <laughs> to end the interview, is there anything that you guys would like to add or speak on that you think I might have missed or that you just want to say?
4: Yeah, I've been on voyage. Yeah, Bruce Springsteen told
1: us that. Yeah. Get out there and voyage. Okay, voyage well, never ends.
2: Sure, sure. Thank you guys for taking the time Thanks to really. chat with me. It was great to learn more about you and a little bit of your background. Those yeah. interested in catching a sure, sure show in the East Lansing area can catch them at St. Andrews Hall in Detroit on March 26, 2020.
1: Sick. Great. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks.
0: And that's it for our show. Thank you to our station manager, Joe Dandron, our general manager, Jeremy Whiting, and program director, Amber Knutzki. And as always, thank you to you, our listeners. We love you. And you've been listening to The Undercurrent.